while back, Pastor Dennis was preaching here, and he preached a sermon on the, on the parable of the prodigal son, titled, Our God Who Loves a Party. And he reminded us that God the Father, God is like the father in the story, caring nothing for retribution or for honor or for being right, but everything for his lost son. When the son returns, he throws a big party to celebrate. It's a beautiful image of the heavenly homecoming that awaits all repentant sinners. And it isn't surprising that Jesus would tell a story, such a story. After all, Jesus, being a good Jew, uh, grew up around the great three feasts of the Jewish calendar. Passover, which commemorated the Israelites' hasty departure from Egypt. Weeks, which celebrated the wheat harvest and the giving of the law at Sinai. And finally, tabernacles, which celebrated the fruit harvest and served as a reminder of the Israelites' 40 years in the desert, living in makeshift shelters. Uh, this last festival, by the way, uh, is still cel is celebrated today, basically. They, uh, they build shelters out there, so it's like camping. And they eat and drink and party out in the shelters. It's kind of fun, you know? You have a, basically a party tent. Jesus himself uh, centered his ministry around such parties. He hosts two huge dinner parties, feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, respectively. So in Jesus, we see the kingdom of God as joyous feasting, a party to which we are all invited. So perhaps we shouldn't be too surprised or disappointed with Peter or the other disciples when things take a sudden change in chapter 8, when they lose the plot and they fail to see what Jesus's ministry entails what Jesus has to go through to bring us that joyous feasting. Up to, the, up to this point, Jesus had continued his ministry of preaching and healing and eating all over Galilee. But there had been opposition, sure, but it seemed to be maybe just a minor bump on the way to glory. And then suddenly in chapter 8, everything turns. And Jesus tells the disciples exactly what Messiahship means. It means rejection. It means suffering, dying, and rising again. And on top of that, it also means that Jesus' disciples, to be disciples, are going to follow him on that same path. That doesn't sound like the right way at all. Where's the joy? Where's the victory? Where's the party? What's all this suffering talk? So perhaps mixed with Peter's terror on the mountaintop was wild relief. Jesus had just said, some standing here will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. And here it was. Here it was on that mountaintop. Jesus reveals himself as the Lord of life, king of the cosmos, the embodiment of God's reign on earth. Rather than the unassuming Jesus they had known up to this point, and you might remember a while back, the, there was a mini-series on the History Channel, the Bible, 
And it showed Jesus as six, then uh, portraying Jesus was six foot two, chiseled Brazilian actor Diogo Morgado. No. Or as I like to call him, hot Jesus. It's probably not what Jesus looked like. Probably looked kind of unassuming. They see, rather than the unassuming Jesus that they see, that they had known, they see him transfigured. Before, him, before them, shining brighter than the sun. And Elijah and Moses are there with him. The summation of Israel's history. Moses, the lawbringer and prophet par excellence. And Elijah, the wonder worker, the destroyer of idols, the truth teller. Standing before them. What an amazing sight this must have been. The promise Jesus had made just prior to this scene had been fulfilled, was fulfilled. Here was kingdom and king in their fullness. So when Peter suggests in his terror, hey, let's build three tabernacles or tents, there may be more behind his words than mere terrified babbling. Perhaps he thinks that the final ultimate festival of tabernacles is here. There was an end times thing going on with this feast to begin with. Deuteronomy, it says, all the nations. You will celebrate this festival with all, with all the people around you, with the resident alien, with, uh, with, uh, your, with your servants. Everyone in the land is to celebrate this. So it, be, it started to symbolize the final gathering of God's people. So perhaps Peter thought, this is it. This is the final Feast of Tabernacles, the end time feast that will never end. And it's starting right here on this mountaintop. And we three are the first to witness it. Maybe the hard work is already done. Perhaps there's no need for the cross at all. Perhaps what Jesus said about Messiahship was some weird test he had. Or maybe Jesus changed his mind. Whatever the case, it looks like now it's, it's party time. But then the cloud shows up. The same cloud that descended on Sinai. And the voice sounds, the same voice that spoke the Ten Commandments directly to the people of Israel. The same voice that spoke to Elijah in his despair on the mountaintop. The same voice that spoke to Jesus at his baptism confirming for him his identity as son of God. This is the same voice. It sounds again, this time so that everyone present can hear, this is my son, the beloved, listen to him. Just listen. Listen to what he says about what being Messiah means. Listen to what he says about what true glory and power looks like. Listen to what he says about the cost of discipleship. And most importantly, Listen to what he will say later in Mark about what his death will mean for so many. Hint, it's in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, which unfortunately we don't get to until October 20th. But it's there. We're not at the end time feast of tabernacles, not yet. Rather, we're at the beginning of our wilderness journey with Jesus. We're in Passover. We're leaving Egypt for the reign of God. 
There is suffering, necessary suffering on such a journey. All growth entails suffering. But on that path is also joy beyond imagination. Sometimes the church is tempted with the same temptations that Christ had, that, that the disciples had, excuse me, the disciples had. There's a drive for glory now, success now, according to the church's, the culture's standards of success. Let's do a quick fix. Let's focus on what we can do to get bodies in the door and dollars in the plate, a charismatic, handsome pastor in the pulpit. That was kind of a joke. <laughs> I once heard a pastor I otherwise admire say, once in a moment of frustration, we need a gimmick here. Get the people in. We need a gimmick. We need some kind of a mountaintop experience. Aren't we sometimes inclined a similar way? That if we just market shalom the right way, and I'm using that term deliberately, if we just had the right program, the right pastor, the right staff, the right you fill in the blank, this church could really grow then we could really get the party started. God, if you could just bring in tabernacles now, right now for us, we would really appreciate it. But it's in the desert. It's on the journey out of Egypt into the reign of God that we learn what following Jesus means. And Jesus is faithful. The path of discipleship entails suffering, to be sure. It entails the cross. Jesus is very clear about this. But it also entails joy. There is a joy in following the one who is the embodiment of the hopes and dreams of God's people. There is a joy beyond our understanding of following the king who laid down his life for you and for me. When we follow Jesus... We do not follow any other gods, would-be gods or messiahs that are out there, including what Paul calls the God of this world in our, in our reading from 2 Corinthians. That God is the one of quick fixes, of flash and dazzle and nothing else, of false hopes that crack and delusional dreams that vaporize in the light of the sun. That God is the ultimate God of works righteousness, which promises if only we do X, God will do Y. We follow Jesus Christ, who passed through death back to life again, winning us for himself. We did nothing to do that. That is fully, that is all grace. And we wait in hope for the big final party, the one where all God's people are reunited at the feast that has no end. Luther summed it up this way, and that today I'm not in the catechism. Usually I am in the catechism. Today it's another Luther quote. This life, therefore, is not godliness, but the practice of becoming godly. Not health, but getting well. Not being, but becoming not rest, but exercise. We are not now what we shall be, but we are on the way. The process is not yet finished, but it is actively going on. That this is not the goal, but it is the right road. At present, everything does not gleam and sparkle. 
but everything is being cleansed. The road awaits. Let's boldly follow our Lord upon it.